Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello everyone, Simon Mundy here and welcome back to the show. This week I am joined by Owen Eastwood, who is one of the world's most in-demand performance coaches. He's worked with the England football team, the Scotland rugby squad, the South African cricket team, as well as the Royal Ballet School and the command group of NATO. He recently helped Team GB prepare for this year's Olympics, as well as Gareth Southgate and his squad, as they got ready for the Euros, in which they were finalists, of course. Owen set out the thinking behind his success in his excellent book. It's called Belonging, the Ancient Code of Togetherness. He shares ideas around belonging, the power of a shared vision, and even the spiritual wisdom of his ancestors. Owen was born in New Zealand. He's half English, half Maori. His father died when he was just a little boy, which unsurprisingly had a huge impact on Owen's life and his work. Now, Owen's book really is fantastic. His work and his outlook really resonates with me, and it was a pleasure to pick his brains and explore his philosophy, one that really has genuine depth and value. Before we get to our conversation, I want to say a huge thanks to my sponsors, Pure Sport. Their range of CBD and nootropic supplements have had a positive impact on how I sleep, unwind and focus throughout the day. I highly recommend them. CBD has been shown to have benefits for anxiety, inflammation, aches and pains, and it may even be good for long-term brain and heart health. Combined with their supplements range, Pure Sports are paving the way in the natural wellness market. Frankly, if nothing else, you've got to try their unwind oil before bed you will sleep like a baby and the good news is you can get 20% off with the code life20 at checkout that's life and the number 20 all one word at checkout just head to puresportcbd.com and enjoy 
And with that, let's get to this week's episode. Just a heads up, we recorded this a few weeks ago now, so the weather and the COVID picture looked a little different when we spoke. Anyway, here is Owen Eastwood. Owen, how are you doing? I'm doing great. What a beautiful day, isn't it? Beautiful day, end of summer. Lovely to be talking to you. I'm delighted to have you on the show. And you're a man with a fascinating CV. And I want to quickly touch on some of the people you've worked with. Gareth Southgate's England football team, the British Olympic team, NATO, the South Africa cricket team. But we're not just talking about sports. We're going to talk about the concepts, the ideas and how to apply it to everyday life, whether that be business, family, humanity as a whole. We're going broad with this. We're using sports as the window into something a lot deeper because this subject lends itself to that, doesn't it? Absolutely. It's all about the connection between people, how we need each other, how we need to belong, how our futures are completely interwoven with other people. So for me, when I think about this, I'm always thinking about family first. I'm thinking about all the groups we belong to and you can take it all the way up to nations for sure. Uh, you can take it even further than that, I would say, but uh, uh, there we go. Um, so yes, the book is called Belonging. And just quickly, in terms of serendipity timing, it came out 2021. We know the Euros was around that time as well. But whilst sport is a fundamental aspect of it, just share a little bit about how the change in the culture that we've all experienced that's been forced upon us over the last 18 months has actually impacted some of the inquiries you're getting from areas that perhaps you weren't to the same degree before? Yeah, well, the, we agreed to write the book uh, well before we'd heard of COVID. And so it was quite incredible timing, really, that that came about. I wrote it during the lockdown. The Olympics and the Euros, which I'm both involved in, were postponed for 12 months. And incredibly, really, they both took place just as a, at the time the book launched. And so I thought that was incredible enough timing, but what's probably been even more incredible is that the books gain momentum when now businesses are starting to come back and coming back into the office for people to work together and the leaders, to their credit, a lot of them are just pausing a little bit and understanding that there is no point us all coming back in and being around each other and putting our heads down on our computers and being back into that mentality. We actually realise the energy of connection in a way we'd never fully appreciated before. So what, what we should do is actually, this is a unique opportunity for a reset around the way we work um, and our working culture. And it's, yeah, it's been very humbling that quite a few, you know, corporate leaders, you know, around the world have been in contact saying that they've been using belonging to help navigate that. Individually, and we're going to talk about values, stones, I think, as you refer to them as, individually, connection where does it rank for you well I'm a performance coach you know I should make that clear so my job I'm not a life coach I'm not an executive coach um, I'm a performance coach so that, what that means is that you know teams and organizations get me involved because they are competing and they've got a goal they've set and they want to achieve it and they understand the power of the environment and the power of leading so that's my place and so when I think about connection I actually often talk about it in terms of it's the ultimate energizer in a team. If you think about when you're in an environment, any environment with other people, there are certain things in your environment which energize you, trust, 
you know, that feeling of belonging, of course, but that feeling of connection, looking people in the eye, body language, which is positive, leaders which you know care about you. All of these things really energize us in our environment. But there's certain things that certainly de-energize us. You know, lack of integrity, sort of lack of trust, um, a bullying style of leadership, all of these things. So when I, when I talk about connection, I actually like to use a lens of energy. Why would we not want to have the most awesome energy in this group? And why would we do crazy things to reduce our energy? So if we think about connection, let's use that as a way of understanding the way we should set this environment up. And connection and all those other words you use, trust, belonging, they all very much go hand in hand, don't they? Yeah, that's um, interrelated for sure. We're going to dig into that. But let's start with your story, because you went through a real trauma at a very young age. You lost your father, was it shortly before your sixth birthday? Yeah, the week before my sixth birthday, yeah. The week before your sixth birthday. What impact do you think that's had on you? To what degree has that even led to belonging and this coming out? And then from that, I want to lead into the letter that you sent. But we'll get there if you answer those mm. first two questions. <laughs> oh, well, um, when I was you know, five, my father died. I think for me personally, it was, it was such a shocking event that I don't think it fully registered what had happened at the time my brothers were 12 and 10 and it absolutely shattered them and my sister was three and i think us two i don't know maybe it was a surreal thing but certainly as i got older it had a more and more impact on me i'm in my early 50s now and it still was has a profound effect on me when i think about it and i i, I miss him a lot you know my mum said i was his shadow and everywhere he went i would always follow him around so yeah, it did have a real impact on me. I think in terms of my work that I do today, maybe the most direct line I could draw would be my father was an only child. He was half English and half Maori, the indigenous people of New Zealand. And when he, he died, that connection to both of those heritages was also broken. And um, I, I really wasn't prepared to deal with that and accept that that I knew I was I, I knew I was part English and part Maori but I didn't feel I belonged to either of those cultures and it really really got under my skin and I basically have formed a life mission <laughs> to repair the chain and um, create a sense of belonging with both of those powerful beautiful tribes and now I've able to pass it on to my children and they feel a very deep sense of belonging with their English and New Zealand Maori cultures. So in terms of the Maori culture specifically, can you just explain the action you took and the response you got? Yeah, as I said, it was something that was under my skin and I wasn't, I wasn't um, able to shift really. It was this, this angst, I suppose, in some ways about having this chain broken to, to this heritage. So when I was 12 years old, I wrote to the Maori tribe that I um, affiliated to, Naitahu. And, you know, I was just a 12-year-old with a handwritten letter basically saying, you know, do you know who I am? My father, my grandmother, part of your tribe, and I want to know if I am. Really, that was what I asked. And they wrote this just the most beautiful letter back, which was not that long, but fundamentally what it said was, you belong here. And it gave me 25 generations of ancestors and stories related to all of them. 
It was the most profound sense of being connected to something bigger than myself and a profound sense of belonging I've experienced. And it might sound crazy, but because I had that experience and know the power of it, you know, whenever I work with a team, I, I really, really have a sense of mission that I want people to feel that. If you come into the England football team or you come into a, a corporate team, some of the corporate teams I work with, I want it to be a profound impact on you that you feel that you have joined something really special and that you belong there just as you are. And I want them to have the same attitude that was given to me, which is just a big smile and an arm around me and telling me you belong here. How did you feel when you got that letter back? Can you recall the emotion you felt if you had to summarise it quickly? And, and even now, how do you feel recalling it? I think I was in some ways surprised. I think I might have had a pessimistic expectation that I wouldn't get a reply and that I'd stay lost. So when I got it, it was euphoric and it was a life-changing moment because then I felt, okay, okay. And I think maybe if, you know, if I was sitting on a psychologist chair, they might, it might be that that was also about reconnecting to my dad who wasn't physically with me anymore. And I'm sure that's true as well, but it's had a much wider impact on me than just that. It's uh, fundamentally changed my life and my worldview. And part of that is the Maori tribe then very subtly introduced me to some very powerful ancient ideas which as you know have a huge influence on the way that I do my work as a performance coach which brings us neatly to fucker papa yep could you just explain what this is how would you summarize it well it's a very ancient polynesian idea but actually what i've learned is that it's echoed in a lot of other corners of the world as well um chinese culture native american indian culture lots of places but the idea of whakapapa is it is an explanation to you as to your place in the world, which is an absolute gift. And the framing of it is that each of us are part of an unbreakable chain of people that go all the way to our first ancestors, but also all the way into the future to the end of time. And this can be your family, but it doesn't it can be any group or community you belong to. There is no limit to this. Whatever group or community you feel you belong to, this whakapapa applies to it. So it's this idea that we're part of this unbreakable chain of people back to our origin story. And not only are we part of an unbreakable chain of people, but actually our arms are interlocked with each other. And the metaphor is that the sun first shone on the origin story and our very first ancestors. So for the England football team, that's 1871, the first ever English team that played uh, Scotland. (laughs) But whatever the community or group is, we've all got an origin story, whatever it might be. Sometimes it's quite spiritual and other times it's more matter of fact. But the sun first shone on them. And then the sun slowly moves down this line of people. And it moves off people, which means their time has passed. But that's okay because we're connected forever. And this chain is unbreakable. And when the sun is moving from a strong culture, what happens is that the sense of their purpose, their sense of identity, their values, their rituals and traditions, and their aspirations and vision is all passed on as the sun is moving. So we all inherit this. And it basically creates a a line and a standard for us to live above. And every time that the culture is passed down is that that group of people then have an opportunity to leave their own legacy. So whatever they do when the sun is shining on them, ultimately will be the memory that people in the future will have of them. And that is very much woven with the idea that we want to make this group strong for those who follow us. That's what yeah. good ancestors would do. 
So these ideas are probably quite familiar, but a lot of them do come from these ancient ideas. So for me, that was very profound. Obviously, in one way, the, the idea of I stand with my father still with their arms interlocked is, is really reassuring to me, very comforting idea for me. But also, you know, I'm, I'm standing here with, for, for this interview and I, I have two children, but I, I honestly feel my grandchildren and great-grandchildren are standing beside me right now. And I'm not being metaphorical. I actually feel it. And so that gives me a huge sense of belonging to the past, to the present and the future. And it gives me a sense of obligation that I want to make things as best I can, give them the best conditions to be successful. And I'd rather do that than become a big celebrity and earn a lot of money and do all those things for myself. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And you speak about Whakapapa offering a, a sense of immortality. And I can very much hear that when you speak about it in those terms. And I remember speaking to James Kerr about the All Blacks. You get the jersey for a brief period. If you can leave it just that little bit better off. And you can apply that to anything, can't you? Families are the most obvious groups. Things get passed down in families. Patterns get passed down in families. It's almost like being handed a uh, copper vase and just polishing it just that little bit and then handing it on. I just think it's this, it's this lovely mm. idea of just doing your bit on a never-ending line, essentially. Yeah, actually, I, I, I like the polishing the vase, but actually I think it can even be more you know, explicit and even more dramatic than that. There are some lines of people where the values have not been high, they've been low. Yeah, yeah. There have been, been families where things like domestic violence has been a, a recurring pattern and been accepted, right? This is an important part of whakapapa, which I want people to understand, is that this does not mean that we are destined to replicate and mimic what came before us. When the sun moves onto us and is shining on us, we have an obligation to pause, take time and think, how do we make the culture of this group, this family, this team stronger? And actually, there's some powerful things happening in New Zealand where there have been generations of some of these, uh, you know, domestic violence, for example, and actually there is a real addressing of it right now. And I have heard the, from the voices of many men saying it stops here. The sun is shining on us and we will break this pattern. And that is the, mo the biggest gift we can ever give to our children and our grandchildren. So to me, that's the power of it. And even in a, in a much less significant way, the England football team under Gareth Southgate, I think of it a little <laughs> bit like that as well, because, you know, they've been to these big tournaments, a lot of expectation. And, and a lot of the times the guys hadn't, you know, fully enjoyed it. And there've been a lot, you know, quite a few occasions when they were underperformed. So in some ways, you know, his approach I put in that bucket as well is that let's just pause and think about this. What yeah. could we do? Maybe we could actually be more competitive in these tournaments. What would that take? That would take maybe changing the culture, the changing the way we connect to each other, our sense of belonging, our, our sense of embracing our diversity and actually talking about it and, and using it as a super strength. And the sun is still on them, and I feel like they've, they've been doing that. So, yeah, it applies. I love the fact that you are using it as completely universal because it is. And actually, that's kind of what I was getting at with the families. And when I say patterns... There'll be positive ones, but there will be many negative ones. Yep. And I think, yes, recognizing that we have an opportunity to take responsibility, not assign blame or fault, but to accept responsibility to do our bit. And where, like you say, where possible, rewrite history to do our bit, to shed those patterns that don't serve us, to enhance and grow the ones that do. 
I think Whakapapa gives you a profound sense of belonging. I, I think it's, it's hard to imagine a, a deeper sense of belonging than someone looking at you and saying, you are part of an unbreakable chain of people back in time, all the way back and into the future. And even though the sun will move from you, you are immortal because you will always be part of this. I think that is the most profound sense of belonging I've ever heard. But the other part, which you're picking up on, and I love it, is that it is the most empowering idea. It is not a direction to mimic and replicate. It is permission and an obligation to continue the good stuff, but it is also permission to reflect on how do we strengthen. And, and I like the way you frame that, is that let's take responsibility um, for shifting some things. And there is never going to be a moment in time where we say we've reached perfection. No. There's nothing we can do to strengthen our family or our team or our community. There will always be work to be done. And, you know, if we're going to talk on big scale, I'll tell you one thing I'm not very impressed with, and that is if you think about climate change and you think about our whakapapa as humanity, the sun yeah. is shining on us and particularly our leaders right now. <clears throat> and we are not doing everything we possibly can to create the conditions for our people to thrive after us. The point even where we might even be risking extinction at some point down the line. That is the opposite of what ideas like Whakapapa are saying, even if it's politically inconvenient, if you rise above that and understand that there is something higher and you're a custodian of that, then you make good decisions. And I, I feel like I'd love them to understand this type of framing of, of the challenge they've got right now. Something I talk about a lot is the importance of living in the present. And actually, we can't do anything but live in the present. Uh, the only thing that's taking us out of the present is thought. But at the same time, you want to toggle that with an awareness of the past and of the future. Right now, perhaps, there is a lot of short-termism. You know, in terms of breaking patterns and, and all that kind of stuff, you talk in the book about self-actualization at one point, and that would involve things like becoming aware of patterns. And then self-actualization might seem like you're being, and you nod to this, selfish. But actually, no, we can only ever ultimately be responsible for ourselves you can't fix someone else the more you self-actualize the more you fulfill your own potential and that includes humility the more you're then able to serve the long lineage i mean that was what the the key point about that i was trying to make and re re referencing obviously abraham maslow's work was that self-actualization can sound quite indulgent and individualistic but actually i i tried to allow the voices of the experts around this, which said that the highest form of self-actualization is serving others. Now, that might sound a bit mamby-pamby, but actually, if you look at our evolutionary history, you know, for 99% of human history, we were hunter-gatherers, and we lived in bands of between 25 and 50 people and obviously smaller uh, numbers of kin. So we have been always set up to think of the tribe and the family first because our survival was dependent on how well they were doing. You know, we weren't going around in our evolutionary history thinking about this is my individual purpose and my individual vision of what I want to do and these are my individual goals. It wasn't like that. We all had to take care of each other and we had to hunt together and we had to share. Um, that's how we were only going to survive. So, uh, you know, Michael Gervais, you know, he's a good friend of mine. He's a performance psychologist in the U.S. And he put it, puts it actually very well from a hard science, biological point of view, just in case some people are thinking this is a bit soft. And he, he makes a very powerful point that when people are working towards a collective goal, they actually experience releases of dopamine, oxytocin, 
serotonin and endorphins in a completely different scale than when individuals are pursuing something which is an individual purpose, an individual mission. And that makes sense to me because our biology has evolved in order to drive that group behavior. So self-actualization, absolutely responsibility, but also an awareness that the highest service that we can provide is helping our families and our groups and the teams we belong to. In terms of groups, how big can you go, in your view, in terms of the us aspect of belonging? Um, well, that's, you know, I, I, when we think about climate change, uh, the us needs to be actually even beyond homo sapiens, doesn't it? All life is affected by this. So I don't think there is, a, there is necessarily a limit around how we define us. On a smaller scale, you know, our communities and teams are becoming increasingly diverse. And, you know, obviously that's a big theme out there at the moment, but people are quite good at enabling diversity to happen, but they're not so good at enabling inclusivity to happen. And what tends to happen is you end up with a dominant clique, and basically for most of the people, they're expected to conform to that clique's view of the world. I think at an international level, there's probably huge elements of that still going on, and you know, for me, I just win, you know, wince at the, the conflict with China and, and, and the Western countries. And I just can't understand why we just can't see ourselves as together on all of this and just have a bit of respect for each other's diversity and ways of thinking about things. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, because despite our superficial differences of living in this place or living in that place or having a different language, whatever. No, they're all superficial differences. We all belong to the same tribe. And that is not just, like you say, not just humanity, but life itself. Absolutely. And we don't have a dog at the moment, but we've had some beautiful dogs in the past. And our dogs belong to our family. And they know that because they were looked after, they were cared for. Um, we showed affection. They trusted us and, and it was all reciprocated. <laughs> so I know it might sound like a silly example, but I don't think, no, it is. No. I don't think we need to limit it in any way at all. No. And you know, we are harming a lot of species right now. And we're yeah. not seeing the interconnectedness. We're seeing ourselves apart, which is the definition of not being an inclusive mindset. Right. So let's talk a little bit about some of the ways that this can be put into practice. And obviously the All Blacks, the most successful sporting team on the planet, statistically of all time. Could you give an example of how the All Blacks have managed to harness the power of belonging to produce results? Well, the thing I think that distinguishes them is that they, they had an early insight into the power of belonging and they had an intention around it, which is over 100 years old. That's the difference. Like I'm, I get plenty of people approaching me to work with them or whatever, or just have a conversation. They, they now get it. These guys got it from 1905 on <laughs> and their culture has been framed in a very intentional way. And let's think about, well, why, why did they do that? Well, they did that because actually right from the start, that was a much more diverse team than, say, for example, the all-white South African team or the English team or the Scottish team, right? It was always very much um, working class and professionals and all sorts of people, um, Maori, you know, Europeans. It was always a very diverse team. And what they obviously picked up on very early is that when people come into an environment and they don't feel a sense of belonging. They suffer from anxiety. That is the way Homo sapiens are, are wired. It's biological. We we are anxious. We are we have this 
conscious and mainly unconscious fear that we will be rejected, that this, these, this group will push us away and we will lose protection and status and all of these things. So what happens is that when people are feeling like that, that they completely leak energy to come back to that word that you and I were using earlier. And when you're in a high-performing environment, that is, you know, bordering on criminal to be wasting energy through people having all this social anxiety going on. So actually, the um, inoculation to that was let's create an environment with rituals where everybody feels they're part of it. They all do the same rituals together. Everybody has a voice and everyone's story is known and respected. And allow all that anxiety to dissipate or to put it in a biological way, allow the stress hormones and adrenaline and everything that's pumping around to get into balance and allow other hormones which are more positive to performance, like oxytocin that we get when we feel connected to people around us, dopamine, which is that motivational hormone, serotonin, which regulates our mood, and endorphins, which are high energizers, which are crucial to social bonding. And they didn't know any of that science at all. But they instinctively, intuitively understood this, that when you create that environment with a tent, people have more energy and you can see it in their body language and the way they communicate and the way they think. And it's not the All Blacks who invented this. This is going back thousands of years to our ancient ancestors. They only had each other. They didn't have consultants, they didn't have data, they didn't have strategy, none of that. They only had each other. So they actually knew very well the things that would empower a group to be able to take care of itself and to go and be successful as competitors and hunters. And they knew the things that would screw it up. So, you know, that's why I've loved in my last few years is connecting with the evolutionary psychology department at Oxford University and just hearing stories about our ancient ancestors. And I, I honestly believe our ancestors had a better understanding of team dynamics than we do today. Oh, I don't doubt it for a second. Yeah, I mean, we are disconnected in a way more so than we ever have been, certainly in some respects. You spoke about a lack of belonging, creating anxiety, and you give quite a nice example of that via Michael Owen. Now, Michael mm -hmm. Owen obviously was a success, burst onto the scene at Liverpool. Liverpool, which is a, a club that has mm -hmm. belonging, um, mm -hmm. died in the wool, right? Yep. Uh, he did so well. And then he went to Real Madrid as European Player of the Year, and he struggled. And can you explain why he struggled? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because these are stories which apply to any group um, we belong to, okay? And, and in, you know, including work at, at work. It's not just about sport at all, and hopefully that message is coming loud and clear. So I, I think Michael is a, is a powerful story, really, which he told me. You know, and that was, at Liverpool, he felt he belonged. So what did that actually mean? He felt that he could just be himself. He felt that people knew him so well that, you know, even if he came in in the morning in a, in, in a low mood or a terrible sleep or whatever, and he's a bit quieter than normal, that people would just adapt themselves around him to make it comfortable because they knew him so well. Um, he was able just to focus on his job and on training and on playing. He wasn't distracted by anything around in a social environment. And he, that was where it was used to, I think, from 17 to 26 is at Liverpool. And he, you're right, he had this absolutely stellar career there. Then he was transferred to Real Madrid. And, you know, I think it was shocking for him how he internally felt and how unique that feeling was going into that different dressing room. When he came in, there was no induction as such. There wasn't any real welcome. He was sort of just 
took his place in the dressing room, listened to the instructions and went out and trained. And he, 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 had, he had the sense of being an outsider, as you naturally would. And no, no one around him, the leaders least of all, did anything to disrupt that. So he started to feel like, I've just got to prove myself today. Like, I don't belong here. Like, I've got to prove myself. They need to, um, they need evidence of something about me before they will accept me. And he said, he just started to, like, just leak this energy. And even to the point, I remember him saying, you know, a couple of guys would be speaking Spanish in the corner of the dressing room and looking over towards him. Um, He would, most of his life, he wouldn't have thought twice about that. In that environment, he started to get even a little bit paranoid. Like, are they talking about me? Are they saying something about the way I trained today? Do they not think I'm good enough? And that's what happens. And, you know, he had a, a, a modest year and actually came back to the Premier League at the end of that year. And, you know, that's a, a source of some frustration for him is that he knows that he couldn't be the best version of himself there because he didn't have that sense of belonging and that connection with the other guys. And for me, it just, like, frustrates the hell out of me because if a leader had a bit more awareness and intention around that they could have solved that on day one you know and and you would have got a better performance from him and it would have been a better life experience for him as well a few thoughts that have popped into my mind there have been places i've worked where new people have started and after several weeks they've admitted that i haven't been made to feel very welcome i think Mm -hmm. that's quite normal and actually as michael owen shows the more we can go out of our way to make people feel welcome, to make people feel like they belong as quickly as possible. Not only is it the right thing to do, secondly, it's going to get the best out of them. It's just a fundamental behavior that, in my opinion, should be encouraged. And another thing about that at the time was obviously it was the Galacticos, wasn't it? So it was a lot of egos. True belonging, you talk about it in the book as well, that sort of humility and a flatness and understanding that actually... No matter what you've achieved, actually, we are all on that level. We are all on a par. Yeah, I mean, belonging, there's two dimensions to it. One is the belonging cues you get from the people around you, um, which which are crucial. But the other part of belonging, which is underestimated, is belonging to what? And that is when there needs to be the story of us, which is shared with people who come in and people sign up to it. And it comes back to that idea of connecting to something bigger than yourself. And when he... Michael joined Real Madrid. No one sat him down and said, you have just joined the greatest football club in the world and we're going to tell you our whakapapa, our story. No one did that. So for him, therefore, <laughs> there wasn't something to attach belonging to. And then the signals and cues around the environment were ambiguous, at least. Just coming back to something you said earlier, I want to pick up on. You know, you mentioned sometimes people say that they don't, you know, they're made to not feel they belong. It's more subtle than that for a lot of people. It's not that they're made not to feel they belong. It's that they are in a place where it's just ambiguous. It's there's a lack of cues to say that you belong. It's or, or something that maybe quite minor takes on a bigger meaning. Like when I came to London for the first time and joined a law firm, which which I loved and, and spent fifteen years with them before I became a performance coach. But I remember. Uh, we used to have what, what we would call bundle meetings, which were once a month, we would have these meetings where we would, together as a team, talk about the latest case law and legislation to make sure everybody was on top of it. And we would all be expected to to give an update on, on, on some development. So I did that for the first time. It's quite nerve-wracking because an extremely bright, talented group of people, plus the fact I hadn't studied English law, um, <laughs> having come from New Zealand. But anyway, I did my piece. And, and after I, I spoke, without any meanness at all, uh, someone just 
replicated it or repeated a couple of the words that I said in my Kiwi accent and sort of dramatized it and everybody laughed. And it wasn't in any way meant to be mean. I didn't speak for another year in those meetings. I was, I felt like a complete outsider. I didn't, I felt I didn't belong there. They didn't mean that, but it was just that one cue to me was just they have, you know, this person emphasized that you're different. And it actually had quite a devastating effect on my confidence and it put me into my shell. It took me a year at least to actually get my confidence back to speak in that forum. I contrast that today. There's some businesses I'm working with, like on day one for an employee, three different things happen. The CEO themselves welcomes the person on their first day and actually takes them into the boardroom and talks about this is our story and this is what we're hoping to achieve in the next few years. Then they have a separate meeting with their line managers, which is around, hey, so good to see you. I just want to explain, this is why we recruited you. This was so competitive. We had some awesome candidates, but you stood out. This is why we absolutely love this about you. And we can see that you're just going to prosper here. You bring something different. You've got an energy about you, whatever it is. We just get in there. And it's just all belongings cues. And then the third thing that happens on day one is that we're taken out by their peers, who they're going to be working with most intimately day to day. And it's nice and social and that's fine, but there's more than that, there's intention. So each person explains, this is who I am and this is where I come from, this is my story. So by one o'clock in the afternoon on day one, you have had a profound sense of belonging and all of this is achievable. You don't have to be an all black or being in that elite high performance level to have that experience. And that's why I wrote the book because you know most of my family is very much working class and, and I want them to have the same experiences that people that um, play under Gareth Southgate have. I think what you've just run through there from the chief exec to the team leader to the colleagues, people could see that as, oh, that's that's half a day. Mm. That could be some of the best time, the most valuable time a company could possibly spend. Because you mentioned the incident that you had. I've no idea on their intention, but I'm sure it probably wasn't malice, but the negative impact that had for a year. So think of the positive impact something as simple as the process you just run through could have. It's such an easy thing to overlook, just plump someone in like they did with Michael Owen, right, on you get, work it out, no, right, let's explain to you why you now belong and your place in it and what a difference that can make. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In terms of the us story that you talked about, one man who certainly did do that to good effect and who I was delighted to see pop up on your book on many occasions, because I'm a big fan of his, Vern Cotter, in his role both with Scotland and working in club rugby in France. Can you just explain how he harnessed the power of the us story to significantly improve Scotland's performances and standing? Mm. In terms of his curation of the story of us for Scotland, let's just go back a step. Our need to belong is a need to belong to us. And unfortunately, in many ways, we do see the world as us and of them. And in the words of Robert Sapolsky, the head of neuroscience at Stanford University, that has caused oceans of suffering. And that's, but it is part of the way we are wired, is that the sense of belonging, it's the, it's the dark side of belonging, is that the, we, we define groups of us, but that means there's groups of them. And we're still working out the way to shift that. And so much war and conflict we see in the world today is, is really comes back in many ways to this. So, but the bottom line is, from a performance point of view, is that we as people are tuned in to hear the story of us and we want to hear it. And often what happens in working environments and even in high performance environments, there's no story of us. It's all strategic objectives, KPIs. And to me, it's completely soulless. It's like, you know, we want to grow by 5% this year. You know, what do you do? I mean, why? And, and what's the story that we're writing together? And it, you will notice with Gareth, he actually explicitly talks about the players writing their own chapter. You know, he, he, he uses that. So... With Vern, when he be, you know, became Scotland coach, they didn't have an, a sense of identity. I mean, this is what it comes down to. The story of us is another way of saying, what's our sense of identity? And by that, I mean, what is different about us? What is special about us? And they did, didn't have it. So he, and I obviously helped him, with the players, not imposing anything, with Greg Laidler and, and those guys, let's go on a journey together and find out what the story of being Scottish actually is. And we worked with St Andrews University and we, we interviewed some former iconic players and we all together brought back to the players, this is the story of your country. This is the story of your team. This is the story of the thistle. And just let, the, let it breathe for them. And then they start saying, these are the pieces that resonate with us and that we want to take forward with us. And, you know, one of my approach to this is to try and find, you know, like three anchors um, that we base our identity on. You know, three traits that we think to be an archetype in this group of people. These are the three traits that we all respect the hell out of and we aspire to live every day. Yeah. And each of them is wrapped in really powerful stories of our whakapapa. And, but we, we use them to move forward. As we move forward, we want to be people who, although we have an amazing diversity and we love it, we all sign up to these three traits which really is our shared identity. You know, it yeah. might be about being resilient, might be around being fearless, it might be around being creative, whatever those things are. And that was, real, you know, Vern did, a, I think, a you know, powerful job and it was part of the success of that team. Um, that they really, and, you know, and as Greg Laidlaw says in the book, it was very profound 
not just as a sports person, but just as a human being to be wrapped in that identity. Absolutely. Something you said about us and them stuck with me, and I'm glad you said this. So, you know, you say we can only have us if there's a them. I understand that's our human tendency, but, you know, we tend to think of ourselves as, as humans as, as being fully evolved, and I don't think we are. You know, it's only, what, a quarter of a million years ago that we got mm-hmm. our prefrontal cortex. And, and, and I think this whole us and them narrative that is so destructive that we see in so many ways in politics, in football, in medicine now as well, is that actually you can get to a point, I think, where you can have an us without a them. You said yourself, the group can be limitless. And if it's limitless, then it can be all encompassing. Mm. That would be really something to really aspire to is getting to that point of view of how do we challenge that? Well, I think first thing is to recognize our tendency to be us and them, but then to recognize that it's a mental process. It's a thought that pops in our head, let's say, and it's up to us whether or not we decide to buy into that thought. And the more that we recognize the tendency and disidentify from it, the more I think that we can get away from this whole us be them narrative. But I mean, look, it's a pipe dream, but I know it's doable. Probably not in our lifetime or mass, but certainly something to aspire to and certainly something doable. I don't know what you think no, about that. You completely. Yeah, you know, let's actually, and I think that the best thing to do is just to, for people to have an awareness and explain where it comes from. And then let's all together agree that we need to move on from this. So where it comes from, it does have an absolute evolutionary logic because yeah. as we, 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 we lived in these valleys for 99% of our human history as hunter-gatherers, and we had our kin, and we had our band, and we had our tribe. And then in the next valley, there was another group, them. And actually, you know what? When them came over the hill, first of all, they could have been hostile towards us. They could have attacked us. They could have been violent towards us. So we had fear about them. They, we had an anxiety reaction to them. Also, we, they may start competing for the same resources that we're competing for. And not only that, there were times in human history when them would have disease so that actually if they came in, into our group, that would hurt us as well. So there was an evolutionary reason as to why we would be, see them as a threat. That is gone. But our brains haven't evolved to that point yet or our social, um, you know, acuity hasn't yeah. evolved to that. <laughs> And, you know, so, so for me, you know, one of the things I'm proud of actually with the British Olympic team is we created a very beautiful film for their athletes, which they watched, um, you know, on the way to Tokyo, which was with an amazing illustrator, which was all these ancestors from 1896 through the present and into the future. But what we did, that film did, you know, it was quite emotive, um, but it highlighted the full diversity of our team. You know, the first female athlete, Charlotte Cooper, the first black athlete, Harry Edward, the first Sikh athlete, the first Muslim athlete, the first black female athlete, the first openly gay athlete, the first same-sex married couple athletes. All the diversity around us were highlighted in the story of us. And the idea of that was so that everybody, no matter where you come from, what your story or what your own sense of identity might be, you would look at that visual depiction of us and go, I belong here. This isn't a white team. This isn't a middle class team. This isn't a, this. This is a team where I can see the way it's been explained and the story is told, is that all of us are part of it and have been respected and are seen and fit in, and have a place here. And that reduces anxiety. And we actually got you know great feedback around that as well. 
So yeah. that, that, that is the, the, where I'm operating and working. I'm the last guy in the world who is like encouraging coaches to do big team talks about how we hate them. Yeah, yeah, Just yeah. focus on us and what we want to do to fulfill our potential and celebrate it in an inclusive way. Absolutely. So we understand the history why and yep. focus on the us and then the us can get bigger and bigger and bigger and is limitless, I think is uh, perhaps one way of summarizing it to a degree. Um, you talk about stones. So some of the keys to belonging and these are values. So a few that you highlight, you talked about are authenticity, loyalty, competence, consistency, adaptability, emotional availability. So yeah, just in terms of values, where do values fit in and how does one use or how would anyone listening think about, let's say a, a business leader or whatever, about using the power of values to really create belonging? When I talk to people in the corporate sector, without a shadow of a doubt, the number one issue that they struggle with is around values. And unfortunately, I think that a lot of the accepted approach to that is just a bit soulless and lacking in emotional energy. The most powerful, and I use them, I invoke this a lot, but the most powerful example of actually using values to me comes from a thousand years ago, the ancient Polynesian navigators who explored 25% of the Earth's surface, the Pacific Ocean, founded the Hawaiian Islands and, and New Zealand and went all the way to South America and California. And, you know, and, and they're my ancestors and I'm proud of that. But what, what they used to do is when they would leave their little tiny island and go navigating and exploring against this great vast ocean, what they would do is they'd take three stones with them from the village and the navigator would put these three stones between themselves and the crew and tell the story of each stone. So, for example, one stone might represent resilience. And what they would say is that this is a value that represents who we are. We're resilient people. And it would explain that this stone was actually fired out of the belly of a volcano and it still you know, it survived. And that's why it's burnt and black. But it would also tell stories of how on other journeys and other voyages, they had to be resilient. And then it would go on to the next stone around togetherness, maybe, and another one around maybe being adaptable. And each of and they were physical things. They were physical stones, and they put them there in amongst the whole of the crew. And what the navigator would say is that as we go on this voyage, this epic voyage, we will be tested in ways... We will be in an environment with so much of these things we do not control, but we actually can control ourselves and our behavior. And remember always that these are the super strengths of us as a tribe. We're resilient. We, we, we value togetherness and we are adaptable in any situation. And, th and they literally, you know, from my understanding of all that is that they would do it. They'd be in an amazing storm in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and the navigator would get them all around the stones and say, this is tough this is harsh right now and he would remind them of these are the you, you live these values we will be okay and i i've invoked it in my work and i actually got a photo working with the south african cricket team which i love to look at occasionally which is hashi mamla the the iconic batsman beautiful human being first ever muslim captain of his country holding one of our stones that we had in that environment and what we used to do in that team is we would hold the stone and one of ours was like honesty and we would ask everybody just to speak to what that means to you in your own diversity. And he would talk about how the Prophet Muhammad has um, taught him what honesty means. And he would explain that to the team. It's just, it's wonderful because we are all signed up to these values, but we all bring a different 
meaning and interpretation of them. But yeah. that is what becomes our glue together. And so to me, that's still the most powerful example. These are practical things you can literally hold, not things on a whiteboard or in some policy. Yeah. There was a line in your book about someone who basically was working in a company and said something his boss wanted him to hear. Um, <laughs> and it was a lie. Yeah. And I think sometimes honesty and hard conversations, they're absolutely vital. I think of the GB hockey team that won gold in 2016 and the blood on the walls conversation they had, you know, the year or so beforehand where it was just complete bloodletting, getting it out, get all your grievances out, nothing left unsaid, say it as it is. And then once that's done, once you've been totally truthful and honest and it's going to hurt, then we reset and we redesign what do we want to stand for? What are the values that we want to have? Um, and I just think honesty on that front, if you haven't got honesty, you've got nothing, right? Too often people say, avoid the hard conversation or avoid saying what needs to be said. But, you know, hard conversations, honesty, are often uncomfortable, but they're absolutely vital. Yeah, can I, I just want to add something to this because, I, I, you know, people talk about this a lot and it sounds so easy, doesn't it? Let's have an honest conversation. Let's be vulnerable. Those things are not possible unless the culture is highly relational. What I mean by that is in, in an environment where there is no relationship between people and there's no relationship between a leader and their people, people are not going to be openly honest. They're not going to be vulnerable because they won't trust the environment. They won't trust that if I'm vulnerable and honest here, something bad might you know, happen to me. That's their fear. It's only, I'll give you an, an example. Um, I'm going to give you lots of examples around this, but, you know, I, I thought it was quite interesting during the Euros how, you know, Drac Jack Grealish, Marcus Rashford, for example, these high profile players who are incredibly ambitious as well, were not getting huge game time in the big games. And what was interesting is that, you know, they never even subtly or ambiguously, you know, criticised their coach. And the reason for that, and there's a way I understand it, is it's because he has built a relationship up with them so that when he makes a selection decision, albeit they may not agree with it, they know that he cares about them as people and that he has factored in their feelings into his decision. And that is only possible because he's a relational coach. If he's a coach who has no relationship with them at all, he treats them, you know, like parts of a chessboard, and then he doesn't select them, you can expect a very different response from people. And I th you know, to me, that's the same. So when leaders talk to me about, you know, we need, can you come in and we'll let's, you know, I want to have a session or whatever, and we let's, I want to get some honesty out there. And, you know, they have forgot to do the work in advance. You don't, don't invite me to, to be some magician. If it's a relational environment, we can help with the skills around how you do it. But if you're not building a relational environment, if it's a transactional environment, you forget about it. Yeah, absolutely. Something that springs to mind is what Will Carley said to me. And he, uh, before he was England rugby captain, he was in the army and he asked a captain in the army, what makes a good leader? And he just said, fairness. You know, and that to me is, is a form of honesty because it's acknowledging that everyone is equal, you know. Mm. Yes, some people might achieve more. Some people might have more skills, but it doesn't make them any more valuable or any more worthwhile than, than anyone else. And that yes, really sort of stuck with me. And, and that's, that's part of being honest, right? Is like not having favorite. And actually, you, you have a chapter, don't you, in there about status and how we create status hierarchies in our minds. And I have to, to say that <laughs> the more I've 
got rid of them in my own mind or the more I've observed, allow and let go, the easier life has flowed. And, and I think it's a bit like the, the us and them. It's, it's recognizing that our brains have a propensity to put things into mental hierarchies. This person's important, this person isn't. And actually, the more you can get rid of that and recognize that they are just stories in our head, recognize them, they're going to happen, but not identify with them, let them go and have that kind of flat structure you talk about flattening the hierarchy, then that's immensely powerful in itself. Yeah. I mean, you know, we brought a bit of science into the book, obviously, and that's something that I wasn't aware of. But with within half a second, when we walk into a space, we actually make a calculation as to where we sit on the ladder of hierarchy. Can I just interrupt there and just say our brain rather than we? I would just say that because we have a choice whether or not a thought pops up. We have a choice whether or not we we, we buy into it. But anyway, carry on. Yeah, no, no, that's actually a brilliant um, point. And yeah, there's a cognitive calculation that takes place, which we then have the opportunity to process. Um, but actually children, you know, as young as, you know, younger than five also create their own hierarchies just based on their, the people around them. So it's just a real fundamental part of who we are. And it's so much as, as complete BS, of course, and completely useless. But I think that the broader point which you're hitting upon is that because we have spent 99% of our history in, in, around kin and around small bands, we are used to a flat hierarchy and we have expectations when we're in small groups, as opposed to a big a community, city, nation, and I suppose big corporation. We understand in those big, complicated, massive, there will be hierarchies and, and distance. But actually in smaller groups, which we're used to, which is actually most workplace teams and sporting teams and classrooms, that is the, what we're used to. And so our brain is expecting some form of flattened hierarchy. And we, you know, again, I was taught about this and it's interesting that we have an expectation of fairness. Now, that's not an expectation of equality. That's an expectation that we will be treated fairly. So in a sports environment, we, you know, we, we're okay that people pay more than us. We're okay with that as long as we are treated fairly. The moment we're not treated fairly, then all of that becomes an issue that we can latch upon. So again, leaders need to understand that, that you need a relationship with everybody and everybody at least subjectively needs to feel that they're being treated fairly. Yeah. And once you do those things, you're creating some really good conditions for cohesion. One story I absolutely loved, which is about chopping people down to size somewhat. What's it? Shaming the meat? Well, I think the shaming the meat is, a, is, a, is an existing hunter-gatherer tribe, and it's one of their rituals and practices is that when someone is successful in the hunt and brings the kill back for the village to feed on, then it's ritualistic that they will be belittled or some form of real banter towards them. And the, the idea of that is, is to make sure that their ego stays in check. And, and there's a good evolutionary reason for that, is that if we have individuals in our group whose egos are out of control, that can amount to danger for us. They can become, or this hubris can result in them being aggressive towards other people, which brings us into conflict. It can give them aspirations that they actually want accumulating, you know, more for themselves and therefore taking away from the group. So there's very, you know, humility is an incredibly attractive trait in people, I think, but there is a very, very hard reason behind it. Because when someone is humble, they're sending you a very strong signal that they are putting the group above themselves. Sometimes when people are self-deprecating, I'm always looking at that and thinking, is that authentic or not? It's horrendous when it's not authentic and it sends a signal that they're not humble and actually they, they would put their ego above what else is in the room. 
And that's a danger sign for me in the type of work I do. But then other people who are genuinely superstars and the Johnny Wilkinsons of the world and these type of people who are incredibly humble, you know, it just is both attractive, but also it sends a signal that whatever environment he is in, he is prepared to put people before himself. And, um, you know, we are really, really tuned in to people around that. I'm glad you mentioned Johnny because I've had the pleasure of talking to Johnny and he's spoken about the mental health difficulties that he had post 2003 all stemmed from this idea of self-importance this idea of building up the me of uh, if I win this I'm someone special And, and he realized that whatever you achieve it doesn't make you any better than anyone else just on that well-being point you raised, I think it's really important. Is that I think we, we I think it's a beautiful moment in time, Simon. To be yeah. honest, I think uh, coming out of the lockdowns and COVID, hopefully we're going to reset the way we work together. We're going to reset a lot of cultures, and I'm freaking excited about it. And one of the things is around well-being because what has often happened is well-being is a peripheral issue. It's like we're you know we're we're onto it because we got support if you're having you know emotional mental issues or, or physical issues we'll do some adaptation and support it's all there and even in high performing environments it's been treated a little bit like that now i'm seeing it well-being is now moving to the center of performance and what i mean by that is twofold one is if energy is fundamentally going to be our currency towards you know striving to be successful then people cannot be fully energized unless they're well so we need we need to take care of well-being to make sure we have the energy in our group to compete so that that's you know that's obvious and becoming more understanding but the second part of it is you could have an awesome family life and be emotionally in a great place you might be physically really really well really healthy and you come into a toxic environment are you a well are you going to be a well person no you're not going to be a well person. You're going to be marinating in anxiety and stress, which is then going to have a physiological and emotional impact upon you. And the idea that you know we 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 spend a hell of a lot of time at work and and with teams is that we look at people and say, "How are you doing? You know, how's home? You know, how are you?" And actually, not even factoring in that most of their sense of well-being is probably going to be connected to their experience in our workplace. So, you know, what's been massively underestimated is the social element of well-being. So we've got the emotional, we've got the physical, yeah, we've got that. But the social element has been completely misunderstood and, and, and underestimated. And I can see now, even the conversations I've been having recently, where leaders are onto this now, and they're realising that we have both an obligation and also a performance reason to create an environment which is not just psychologically safe, but actually energises people, empowers them. And that means we can't be harassed and bullied. It means that if people are surrounded um, by relationships of low trust and low standards and low integrity, it actually has a really, really negative effect on their whole sense of identity and their sense of well-being. Yeah. So I'm excited by that. I think that social well-being is now where we're going to focus some attention and we're going to see that we have to play a really active role in that, all of us. Very much agree. I mean, I think you only have to look at the Olympics, right? Let's say 10, 12 years ago, the old winning at all costs mentality. And now we're seeing winning plus welfare. And I think in time, it'd be nice to see welfare equals or can lead to winning. So it's like that evolution that the way it goes through. Now, Owen, I want to finish, if I can, by 
getting a little brief masterclass. I want you to think that I'm some naive leader of some mid-ranking, underperforming company who's come in and who's got the best of intentions. Or perhaps I'm a leader of a family, whatever you want me to be for this example. But I came to you saying, look, I want to help foster a sense of belonging amongst my tribe, whatever it may be. What would you say are the most important pillars to be able to enable that to happen? And of course, I fully understand it's very individual. Okay, well, if you're going to be a leader, and actually this applies beautifully to parenting as well as it does to leading a team or a workplace. Let's go back to our, again, our ancient history. And, and, the, and the role of a leader was twofold. Number one was to take care of the people. That was a fundamental role of a leader of a family or, or of a, a band of people or of a group. They were there to take care of the people, make sure that they were well and safe. And so I would reiterate that in any context now, that I'm your leader and I see that I have a responsibility to you to create a safe place where you can thrive. The second responsibility I have is that we collectively have to compete in order for us to be successful. And I want to make sure that you're in a role that you can perform, that you've got real clarity about what we're actually doing and a you know, big picture point of view, but also in terms of the work, how your work fits into that. And I want to have a relationship with you to understand how to get the best out of you. So then I, therefore I'm going to, we're going to spend time getting to know each other a little bit and I want to create, I want to put some money in our bank account of trust so that we can have really, really good conversations going forward. And the other thing I would want to do with you is I just want to take a little bit of time out and I want to vision what you could become. And, you know, again, I, I, you know, we do this a bit with our kids. We do, we do it a little bit with elite performers. We probably hardly ever would do it in a workplace, but I don't see why we wouldn't. So that means you and I are going to co-author a vision of what you could become, maybe the next two, three, four years. Yet. This is the reason we recruited you. This is what your super strengths are. So together, I'm not forcing anything upon you. Let's do it together. What, how would we, those super strengths go to another level? What type of performer would that look like? And therefore, when we have conversations in the future and, we, and I give you feedback and we have appraisals, it's not against what happened yesterday. It's against how close are we getting to this vision of you t getting close to your potential. So the, the other things that I would encourage a leader to start off with. Very, very nice. You talk about shaping that vision. And I know as well, you talk about revisiting that vision. It's something that will evolve. That mm -hmm. You don't want to let it get stale. You don't put something up on the wall and then leave it there and walk past it for the next 18 months no. and it becomes irrelevant. You know, it's something to revisit. It's, it's, it's like a living organism, right? That needs to be tended to like a well-kept garden. And then you would spoke about leaders and a quote I love on page 198 of your book, a leader is best when people barely know he exists. When his work is done, his aim fulfilled, they will say, we did it ourselves. And it's clear that in many areas, uh, leadership has got away from that. And it would be nice to think that in time, we might get back to, to that idea of leaders understanding that it's not just about self-aggrandization, but about looking after your people. Yeah, and I, that's one of the things I actually am proud of my association with the England football team and Gareth Southgate is that he he actually is part, I think, of a, a wider movement of moving away yeah. from the hero leader yeah. to the person who empowers others. And 
and you need you need some humility to be able to do that of course but i think again this is just a really exciting time because i i think this transition is going to accelerate now yeah and people have had a real taste of autonomy at home away from the workplace away from people looking over their shoulder and people are not going to just go back to the workplace and give away all of that autonomy so the leaders who want to micromanage and be and fill the room with their ego are going to struggle the ones who actually can, are able to continue this journey of giving people autonomy and empowering them, they are the best place to be successful. Yeah. Well, listen, Owen, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed your book. I think your the subject of your work and what you've written about is, like you say, it's so of the moment. Here you are at just the right time, in just the right place, with just the right message. And I, I really tip my cap to you for that so uh it's been a pleasure talking to you owen and keep up the good work and uh keep contributing to making the world a better place i would say well i appreciate you and i'm really looking forward to this conversation it was even um you know more fun than i anticipated and uh, uh you know thank you for and keep doing the amazing work you're doing you know this is one of my favorite podcasts you know i've told you that and very really privileged to be part of it Thank you for listening to this episode of Life Lessons from Sport and Beyond. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Owen. I love that idea of a line passing back to the beginning of time and forward to the end of time with the sun slowly passing along the line, allowing us all a brief moment to sit in the light and do our bit to continue or end what has gone before, before passing the baton on. I would love to hear your thoughts and what resonated with you. Get in touch at Simon Mundy on social media or drop me a message via my website, simonmundy.com. And while you're there, do sign up for my newsletter, which takes three nuggets every Monday to get your week off right. That's at simonmundy.com. Anyway, that is it for now. Until next time, goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.